Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 29, An End to Prosperity. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer extra content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to an episode on Celtic expansion. And here's a sample of what's going on. So there's this tribe of Celts known as the Bitteriges, who Livy claims controlled the Celts of Gaul. They were a pretty big deal. And they were led by a man known as Ambigatus. But Ambigatus, whose name means he who gives battle all around, was facing a problem. His territory and power had grown so large that it was becoming difficult to control. And Ambigatus was getting old. So what is an old, all-powerful Celtic king to do? Well, he sent his two nephews, Belovesus, whose name means he who can kill, and Segovesus, whose name means he who can conquer, to find new lands. And with cuddly names like those, I'm sure they went about it in entirely peaceful ways. If you'd like to hear more, head over to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and sign up for membership. It's about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Brian, Lacey, and Elizabeth for signing up already. Now, I really want to start out Season 2, the Anglo-Saxon season, on the new year. But we just have too much stuff left to cover before we get on to the Dark Ages. So, Happy New Year. And I hope you like olives, because we're still rocking it out with the Romans. But before we get underway, let's try something new. Listener mail. Which is actually just a nice way of saying corrections. So I mentioned last episode that sometime following the events of 312, Constantine was a newly baptized Christian. Listener James points out that Constantine wasn't baptized until shortly before his death, basically hedging his bets to avoid getting laden down with all that sin that comes with running an empire. And James is absolutely right. Constantine was a newly converted Christian, not baptized. Sorry about that. Also, my father-in-law pointed out that I mispronounced a Greek letter in the last episode. It wasn't chi. It was chi. So not chiro, chiro. You know, if I went to an undergrad school that had a Greek fraternity system, this wouldn't have been an issue. And there probably would have been more keggers as well. But what can I do? And while I'm apologizing for errors... Remember the prehistory episode way back in the early days? The one where I mentioned in an offhand way that Stonehenge was built presumably by the Druids? Well, this isn't really in response to any listener mail, which actually surprises me because it's such a glaring error. Anyway, that comment about the Druids is completely and totally inaccurate and has annoyed me ever since due to the fact that I find the attribution of Stonehenge to the Druids to be one of the more annoying parts of pop mythology. I honestly have no idea why I said it, and I think I'm just going to have to blame Eddie Izzard. Stonehenge was built by the ancient Britons, and finished off by the Beaker people. And all that was finished long before there were any Celts or Druidism on the island. Really, this has annoyed me so much that I've even considered re-recording the entire episode to get rid of it. But there you go. But let's not end things on a Jamie screwed up note, because that, well, that sucks. So for those of you who listened through to the end of the last podcast, you heard me pondering about halos and soul invictus. Well, John from Michigan points out that Egyptologist John Romer says that halos in medieval paintings were definitely a solar disk. 
So on that note, I hope you all had a great Dies Natalis Solus Invicti, and let's get on with the show. And hopefully this one will be free of errors. All right, so Constantine was the sole emperor in 324. Christianity was no longer outlawed, and in fact, it was now getting pushed pretty hard. And Britannia received a bit of TLC from the emperor due to his close ties with the island. Oh yeah, Constantine lavished attention upon Britannia. And why shouldn't he? Many of the provinces that were sites of his success were singled out for special treatment, and Britannia had certainly earned that. So we're starting to see a boom of prosperity on the island. And of course, there was an economic boom for Constantine and those he personally favored as well. I mean, Constantine was seizing temple property, instituting new taxation laws, and confiscating property from his defeated rival emperors and their supporters. He was rich. Hell, he made the 1% look downright poor. And he was using that wealth to, among other things, raise some of his allies up to the level of capital required for them to be in the senatorial class. It was great for his allies, and it certainly helped Constantine consolidate his power. But this wasn't necessarily a good thing for Rome, since we continue to see an ever-increasing concentration of wealth amongst a small group of individuals, many of whom were exempt from taxes either due to their rank or by, yeah, you guessed it, becoming ordained in the church. Now, I'm not going to say that people were converting to Christianity for purely monetary reasons. But I will say that conversion amongst the upper classes was a rather popular choice, and as a result, the wealth wasn't trickling down, so to speak. But conversions were trickling up? Can things trickle up? Well, whatever the word for it is, conversions were becoming popular amongst the upper classes, and they were taking advantage of all those tax benefits. Another thing that was promoting conversion was the legal option that I briefly mentioned last episode. Remember the one where you could request to have any case transferred to the church? That one? Well, consider the effect that would have on religious conversion. Let's say you're the follower of one of the Celtic gods, and you're getting sued by a Christian. The Christian could easily increase his chances of winning just by saying he wants his case tried before the church. At that point, you're the lone pagan in the room, and the guy deciding the case shares a common bond with your opponent. It doesn't take a legal scholar to know that your chances of prevailing have rapidly diminished. So to protect yourself from this situation, it would be a good idea to, at least for appearance sake, convert. And it was also good politics, considering that the imperial cult now had become Christian. So Christianity wasn't supreme in Britannia, but it certainly was a force to be reckoned with, and woe to the Roman governor who didn't take into account the wishes of the church. So Christianity had plenty of reasons to be spreading rapidly in the empire under Constantine, which isn't surprising since that's sort of how he rolled. Constantine didn't do things in half measures. He was an all-or-nothing sort of guy, and in that way, actually, he was a lot like the Plantagenets, which we're going to talk about much later in this series. And I'll try and remind you of that fact when we get to the Plantagenets, that they and Constantine were just cut from the same cloth. He was a man of big ambitions, and enthusiastic action, and that tended to make things happen on an enormous scale. But it was also mostly tied to Constantine. I mean, the church's legal privilege, for example, didn't last, but it does give you a good idea of what sort of man Constantine was, and also the types of pressure that people were under to convert to this new religion. 
So really, what a change a few years can make. Only a little bit earlier, there was a widespread belief that there was this grand Christian conspiracy. Romans were really fond of conspiracy theories. I mean, hell, even Trajan, you know, level-headed, normal, sane Trajan, well, he was afraid of conspiracies to the point where he actually blocked the creation of a fire brigade because he thought that it might lead to some sort of conspiracy. So yeah, they were all afraid of conspiracies. And actually, not much has changed when you think about it. How many times have we heard about this or that group's hidden agenda on various cable news networks? Anyway, only a short while earlier, Christians were essentially the second shooter on the grassy knoll. They were faking the moon landings. They were running the world from a secret bunker down beneath the Earth's crust. And now they were followers of the official religion of the empire that was a true manifestation of loyalty. They had basically become religious hipsters since they were, you know, Christians before Christianity was cool. All these posers just joining Christianity because they want to be part of the crowd. Psh! Posers. And now we're getting ever closer to the Dark Ages, which means that information is getting harder and harder to find. For example, we know very little about who actually held Roman offices in Britannia. I'll do my best to sort all this out for you, but there's a reason why many history books tend to gloss over this period. It's a mess. So we're fast-forwarding to 337, and Constantine is dying. He had hoped to be baptized in the River Jordan, just as Christ had been, but no luck there. He was too sick, and so it was in Nicomedia where he received his baptism, and soon afterwards he died. And as you might have imagined, when someone as powerful as that dies, there's something of a power vacuum. And then there was total chaos. I won't go into too much detail because it's mostly just Roman history, but this is how bad it got. For about three months, there wasn't an emperor at all. It was bad, and a lot of people died. Ah, Rome. But in the end, Constantine's sons, Constantine II, Constantius II, and Constans, Constantine was kind of a creative guy, well, they all succeeded him. Of course, what we care about most is who was ruling the West. Well, it was the eldest of the boys, Constantine II. He was 21 years old. He was also made the guardian of his younger brother, Constans, who was just 14 years old, and who controlled Italy, Illyricum, and Africa. So essentially, the man who was controlling Britannia was controlling almost the entire empire. But it wasn't going to last, of course. He wouldn't be guardian forever. And there was also Constantius II out there in the east. And how often have we seen multiple emperors in Rome? And how often do things go smoothly when that happens? So before long, there were strains. Constans didn't like being under his brother's control, and Constantine II didn't like the fact that the baby of the family had a huge chunk of territory while he was stuck with Britannia, Gaul, and Hispania. Basically, they were both spoiling for war and felt that they deserved more. And then 340 rolled around, and Constans came of age. But Constantine II refused to give his brother control, and instead insisted that he was still the guardian. Constans was having none of it, and this, of course, really pissed off Constantine II. And the impression is, is that Constantine II really didn't like Constans to begin with anyways. 
Now, Constans was at least bisexual, and you might think that could have played a role in his brother's behavior, but frankly, I think it's unlikely. This reeks of a good old-fashioned Roman power struggle. And so, of course, in true Roman imperial fashion, Constantine II marched on Italy. And he was killed by the forces of Constans. Oops. Now consider the magnitude of this event for those in Britannia. There hadn't been a violent change of power that affected them for about 44 years. So few people alive could remember the last time that something like this happened. I mean, don't forget the bubble that the Romano-British lived in. Rarely were there any civil wars that touched Britannia. Even struggles with Christianity were muted. Britannia was peaceful. And then all of a sudden this happened. It would be like if we, in the U.S., suddenly found ourselves facing the same power struggles that are common in Somalia. And what about the Roman armies of the West? Well, they were accustomed to victory. Since Constantine the Great, they had come to expect to offer a swift boot to the face of anyone who resisted them. And then this happened. They were defeated, and their emperor was dead. Unfortunately, we don't have any information on what happened to the Western armies or the British civilians following this defeat, but you can imagine that it was a really traumatic event for them. So now Constans held all of his original territories, as well as his brothers, Constantine II. So by 340, only three years after Constantine died, we have yet another new emperor presiding over Britannia. Constans. And things weren't easy for the young emperor. He had to campaign against the Franks almost immediately, and then by 342, he was around 19 now, there was trouble in Britannia again. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information about it, but it must have been a pretty big deal since Emperor Constans made a midwinter visit to Britannia in 342 or 343. And remember, trips in winter spell trouble. No one goes on campaign in the winter unless they absolutely have to. Moreover, given the disposition of Constantine II's field army, it's unlikely that he brought many permanent troops from Britannia for his fight against Constans. That means that the British troops stationed in the province were probably pretty close to full strength, and yet they still required imperial relief. So it had to be a huge problem. And if I had to guess, I'd say that Constans probably arrived to deal with the Picts, or troubles with the frontier scouts based at Hadrian's Wall. They were known as the Ariane. After all, there are signs of fire damage at three of the forts along Hadrian's Wall. These Ariani were instructed to move throughout the tribes in the north and collect information on them. And maybe they weren't as loyal as Constans would have liked. Or maybe they irritated the Picts, and the Picts retaliated. To me, that seems more likely, since the Picts were rebellious to begin with, and they were probably sensing that Rome was weakened following the death of Constantine I and Constantine II. And if that's the case, maybe Constan's trip concluded with a treaty between Rome and the Picts, with the Picts being monitored by the Ariani. Although, considering the timing of the trip, what with the death of Constantine and the death of Constantine II especially, and whatnot, not to mention that Constans really wasn't popular, and, of course, the fact that this was Britannia, and we all know what Britannia's reputation was like, there is another possibility. 
it's possible that there was another usurper. And if it was a usurper, that could explain why there were troubles that required imperial attention, even though there were stationed troops that were pretty close to full strength. And actually, it could also explain the winter trip, since a Roman usurper familiar with Roman policies would likely feel safe during the winter, which would allow for a surprise attack. But of course, this is all speculation. Regardless of what it was, it was dealt with, and by 343, order was restored in Britannia, and Constans was victorious. Fun fact on this, by the way, it seems that Gratian, the father of future Emperor Valentinian, well, he was part of this campaign. So this whole situation with Constans inheriting Constantine's territory had an unusual side effect for the administration of Britannia. See, each of the brothers had their own Praetorian prefect for the administration of their portion of the empire. I mean, Constans had his Praetorian prefect for Italy et al. Constantine II had his for the west, and Constantius II had his for the east. But when Constantine II died, that Praetorian prefect remained, and they held administration over the Gauls, Hispania, Germania, Gaul, and Britannia. So suddenly, instead of having a Praetorian prefect being attached to an emperor, now it was attached to a territory. It's a subtle difference, but it's an interesting one considering it's yet another way that the Gallic region, and the empire in general, was getting treated more and more like separate divisible parts. Anyway, so throughout the rule of Constans, we're going to see that he's really steadily losing his friends. He's become a cruel and careless leader, and yet again, Rome is surprised that putting nearly unlimited power into the hands of a teenage boy would make him, you know, wicked. And in addition, he was also known for nepotism, which the legions weren't exactly excited about. And he was known for at least being bisexual, which also they weren't excited about. And he was clearly favoring the barbarians over the Romans, which they really didn't like. And it surely couldn't have helped that Constans was also tough on paganism and had very specific views on how Christianity should be organized. He followed the Nicene viewpoint, which actually is the common viewpoint of modern-day Catholics, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are all one being, essentially. There's the Trinity, so that's how you end up with three gods, but monotheism anyways. Well, his brother Constantius followed Arianism, which basically came to the belief that the Father and the Son were similar, but not the same. Basically, that Jesus wasn't divine. He was just the Son of God. Turns out all those years of studying religion in Catholic school actually paid off. Anyway, the point is that Constans was almost entirely alone, which is not exactly a safe way to be living when you're ruling almost all of the empire. So it's 350, and Constans was largely friendless, and, um, you know doing things that emperors do, I suppose, when he was notified that one of his barbarian generals, Magnentius, who might have actually been a half-Briton, but almost certainly was at least descended from Germanic barbarians who had been relocated and settled within the empire two or three generations back, well, Magnentius had declared himself emperor and had the support of the troops of the Rhine as well as the western part of the empire, meeting Britannia and all Britannia's friends. So Constans did the only thing he could do in those circumstances. He legged it. But he didn't get far. He was soon overrun and assassinated. 
So Constantius II, who was fighting in the east, heard about this and flipped his lid. Was he mad that his brother was dead? Maybe. But I wouldn't say that was definitely what was on his mind. We're talking about Romans here. Constans was probably less a brother and more of a rival. But this Magnentius, who the hell was he? And by what right did he hold the lands that were clearly belonging to Constantius II? After all, he was the last surviving heir to Constantine the Great. Who was Magnentius' father? Magnentius probably doesn't even know. So Constantius II was not happy. And, not being an idiot, Magnentius prepared for war, and Britannia was probably drained of troops to support this rebellion. And of course Britannia was supporting this rebellion. I mean, Britannia can't wait to back any non-Roman usurper. But it wasn't just that he was non-Roman. Magnentius was much more popular than his predecessor for a variety of reasons, such as the fact that he wasn't fratricidal, which is always a plus, but also I think a major factor would have been that while he was a pagan himself, he was religiously tolerant and had no problems with Christians. And given that many Britons either followed Celtic gods, or both Christian and Celtic gods, that tolerance was well received. So there's a good chance that both pagan and Christian Britons flocked to his banner. Of course, not everybody was a big fan of him, especially the upper classes who were, you know, grouchy about his strict taxation policies that were put into place in preparation for the war that was clearly coming. I know, it's shocking that the upper classes were grumbling about taxes. But by and large, Britons were pretty big on this whole Magnentius thing. So back in the east, Constantius II puts the brakes on his war in the east and begins marching west to deal with this barbarian usurper. And meanwhile, a number of other usurpers rose up and laid claim to territories that Magnentius clearly felt were his. He got there first. How dare they steal something that, well, he stole first. That's just not on. Well, the first of these usurpers was quickly put down. But the other one had a little bit more staying power. And to make matters worse, that usurper was allied with Constantius II. And rather than backstabbing him when he had the chance, as others might have done, when Constantius II showed up, that usurper and his army willingly sided with him. And we've got a quote here from Magnentius upon finding that out. So Magnentius had no choice but to fight, and he met Constantius II's forces for the Battle of Mursa Major. Interestingly about this battle, while Magnentius was heroically on the battlefield with his troops, Constantius II was reportedly spending the entire day praying in a church. Which, frankly, if I had the choice of either being on a battlefield or in a quiet church, I'd probably make the same choice, even if it wasn't necessarily the best thing for the army. I mean, I think even the most pious of modern generals would agree that tactics are more important than piety. But Constantius II was lucky. And while it was an extremely bloody battle, with massive losses on both sides, the Roman army prevailed over Magnentius. So the usurper and his army were sent into a rout. And then in 353, another battle was forced, where Magnentius and his men had to make a final stand. They had nowhere left to run. And the battle was clearly lost. And when he realized that, Magnentius fell on his sword, thus ending the life of yet another usurper supported by Britannia. 
The undefeated armies of the Gallic territories had now been beaten three times. Morale must have been low, and it was going to get a bit lower. That's because while things were over for Magnentius, they were only just beginning for Britannia. Constantius II wasn't too happy about this rebellion, and he knew that Britannia was under Magnentius' control for about three and a half years. So he figured that there were probably plenty of holdouts there. Moreover, paganism was allowed to flourish in the province. I mean, these pagans were even allowed to practice out in the open, like without any shame. I mean, that was something that Constantius found to be vile and treacherous. I mean, even if they hadn't rebelled, just doing that was downright disloyal. Moreover, there was a significant amount of bitterness simply over the civil war itself, considering how hard-fought and costly it had been. Consequently, Constantius wasn't too fond of Britannia, and he wanted to make sure that something like this wouldn't ever happen again. So he sent Paulus, a Spanish imperial agent, to deal with the remaining soldiers in Britannia and root out any disloyalty. Meanwhile, Constantius II kept himself busy by shutting down all remaining pagan temples, and he even removed the altar of victory from Rome, which not even his father had touched due to the belief that the altar was responsible for Rome's successes. He was even pushing to completely eradicate the Nicene belief that the father and son were a single entity, and of course, pushing his Arian view. This, of course, wouldn't last, by the way. After Constantius II died, uh, it wasn't too long before the Arian viewpoint was declared a heresy. Anyway, the point is, Constantius II was on a crusade, both in regard to Christianity, but also in regard to kicking Britannia squarely in the teeth. And for that matter, Paulus, who was in Britannia, was now on a similar crusade. Now, Paulus was well known for his cruelty. He was called Paulus Catena, or Paulus the Chain, after his preference to chain people up and drag them through the streets. Sending Paulus to Britannia was not an accident. Constantius II was sending a message to the soldiers of the province. But Paulus arrived and saw that there was pretty much no resistance to his witch hunt and reprisals. And from all indications, Paulus was somewhat of a bully. And when you don't fight back against bullies, they bully harder. And so he seemed to have a hard time controlling his behavior while he was in Britannia. And it didn't take long before he expanded his inquisition into the civilian population. Anyone who even gave the impression that they had sympathy for the rebellion would be in danger. And then things got even worse, and fabricated charges became commonplace. And there was, quote, widespread slaughter and ruin, end quote. Suspicion and accusations were everyday realities, and both the social and economic backbone of the island was being broken by Paulus and, essentially, Constantius II. For a territory that was once treated as a favored province by the emperor's father, this iron-fisted approach must have been quite a shock. Paulus's behavior, by the way, was well outside of his orders from the emperor. But when the emperor found out about it, rather than putting a stop to it, he approved Paulus's actions and didn't lift a finger to stop it, regardless of the extreme methods and the clear injustice of it all. Of course, why would the emperor stop Paulus? Once convicted of treason, the criminal's property would be seized. I suppose it should be no surprise that there were quite a number of the upper classes that were targeted by Paulus. And as we've seen in Gaul, 
we're now starting to see villas being abandoned in Britannia as wealth and capital flee from the island due to the instability of the province. The era of prosperity in Britannia was at an end. Constantius II succeeded. He'd broken its back. And during the Roman era, Britannia never really recovered. And so upon seeing all this widespread destruction, eventually a loyal supporter of the emperor, Flavius Martinus, who was the vicar of the region, attempted to stop Paulus. But he failed, and Paulus accused Martinus and his compatriots of treason. That apparently pushed Martinus over the edge, and he attacked Paulus at sword point. But he didn't manage to kill the terrifying Spaniard, and in his despair, Martinus committed suicide. Things were really getting out of hand. And now, Constantius II either felt that Paulus needed to be reined in, or maybe he thought that his point had been made. Either way, Paulus was recalled and sent to Egypt, and then to the Frankish territories. Both times, his behavior was cruel and murderous, just as it had been in Britannia. But all that brutality can't continue without some sort of reprisal. And sure enough, he was eventually condemned to death by Emperor Julian and burned alive. So, you know, there's your happy end to that story. Britannia was finally rid of him. And then he was turned into a crispy critter. Emperor Julian? You might be asking, who is that? And how did that happen? Well, he was Constantius II's cousin and a Caesar. Julian was brought out of obscurity following dynastic bloodshed, sort of like Claudius, actually, and was actually appointed to be in charge of both Gaul and Britannia starting in 355. He soon developed a reputation of being a brilliant general, scholar, and an excellent leader. Anyway, as I mentioned, he wouldn't always be a Caesar. Someday he'd be an Augustus and would get rid of that troublesome Paulus for us. But I think actually this is a good place to stop. Next time we're going to pick up starting at 360, and we're going to have some serious trouble with the Picts and the Scotty, and uh, it should be a lot of fun. Anyway, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can go ahead and email me. My email address is thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me at the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, or you can head on over to the Facebook page and join the conversation over there. That's at www.facebook.com slash britishhistory. And I think that'll do it. Thanks for listening.